from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony. It's Deviance in Cast, with your host Eric P. Y'all ready for this? So powerful. Now that not only pals are placing it. A few heart-stopping seconds of anxiety. Hello Earthlings, this is Eric Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath, a.k.a. Scartol, a.k.a. a bunch of other names that I use in various walks of life. Um, the Syncast is back, Deviant Syncast, right here for you, uh, although the only thing really deviant about me is my socio-cultural heterogeneity. Um, I, why am I starting this back up? I don't know. I have a lot of things to say, and for some reason people want to hear me say them, so I'm talking, and... If you're listening, thank you. I can't imagine why. I guess you think I have something worth saying. I hope I do. Uh, so this is going to be a somewhat regular thing. I want to do it weekly, but who knows if I really will. In the meantime, uh, here it comes. One of the things I want to talk about is what's going on in the Middle East right now, because as always, or <laughs> certainly as always in the last 20, 50 years, there's always something exciting going on in the Middle East, and right now, especially what's going on in Syria, is uh, quite alarming, obviously. If you follow the news at all, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Assad regime is bombing the heck out of the city of Homs, and uh, there are widespread uh, human rights abuses in Syria all over the place right now. Uh, it seems like every week, uh, the Amnesty International news list uh, gets flooded with urgent action alerts about Syrian activists. However, uh, there was some good news recently. On the 21st of February, uh, a, a Syrian man named Ahmed Andorra was released after almost four months in detention, and uh, he was arrested on some sort of uh, specious charge, uh, and he's been, he's been released, which is great. Uh, it's so rare that we hear good news about political prisoners and things, but that's one of the reasons why it's important to be involved with groups like Amnesty, and if you don't write letters for Amnesty, you totally should. Amnesty International is a great organization. Uh, many of you have heard me say this before, but I once met with Alan Nairn, the amazing journalist, and uh, you know he's done a lot of work on East Timor and lots of places around the world. Alan Nairn had regular communication with Indonesian military officials, and they once told him that if they were holding somebody captive uh, in prison, and uh, they got one letter from out, from somewhere other, some other place in the world, that would they would not kill that prisoner because they had gotten one letter, and. Ever since I heard that, I think, you know what, my letter might be the thing that keeps a political prisoner from being killed. Uh, usually somebody innocent of any sort of crime uh, being held for political reasons. That's what's going on all over the world, and we can do things to stop that. So, hey, uh, do, write for amnesty if you don't already write. Anyway, uh, what's going on in Syria, obviously, is very crazy, and um, I'm actually not too mad at the U.S. government response so far. I know that's a strange thing. People might be scared to hear me say that, but, you know, look, my bar at this point is this. Are we dropping bombs on them yet? No. Are we uh, blocking U.N. Uh, action? No. And so, in those two cases, uh, right now, hey, the U.S. isn't doing horrible things like dropping bombs on innocent civilians or blocking action at the U.N. Uh, so, I'm happy so far. Not happy, obviously, with the way things are going, but but really, if we want to look at it honestly, it's uh, Russia and China that are blocking action at the UN this time. And we do it plenty of the time. Uh, we love to block UN action on Israel and you know Indonesia and other places. But in the case of Syria, uh, it actually looks like we're um, not doing anything stupid yet. Now, some people are talking about we should start arming the Syrian rebels. And in my view, that kind of feels like we're picking a side. And I think that could be a real dangerous business. It's clear that the Arab League hasn't had a whole lot of success in getting the violence to stop. So I'm not really sure what I would say I want to see happen next. But uh, I don't 
feel comfortable with the idea of us supplying weapons to rebels in a uh, conflict halfway across the world. Because so often when we've done that in the past, it has turned out horribly. Elma Zote and uh, Milai and you know East Timor is a great example. There's all sorts of uh, reasons why I don't want to see the U.S. government getting involved in yet another military conflict. But at the same time, as I felt in Libya, uh, I'm concerned about humans, uh, human rights being violated and civilians being killed, uh, as was happening in, in Libya and as is happening in Syria. Now, what's the scale? How often does the scale of those abuses get magnified by those who are really eager to go to war? I know that's a tendency, but on the other hand, as I said in the case of Libya, uh, it may be we can't know what the future is going to bring, obviously, so we can't know exactly what the best course of action is going to be, but it is possible once in a while that U.S. hegemonic imperialist action will, in the long run, save lives. Now, that doesn't mean I'm ever happy about U.S. hegemonic imperialist action, but in this case, it might be something that could bring some less body count to Syria. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, someone who died recently in Syria uh, was a reporter named Marie Colvin, and she's awesome. If you haven't looked into her, you should totally uh, read her biography. She's got a fascinating life story. I hope somebody writes a book about her soon, because I'm sure she just has a million stories to tell. Uh, she lost an eye in 2001 when an RPG exploded near her while she was covering the Sri Lankan Civil War. And the thing that is closest to my heart has to do with East Timor, because in 1999, uh, for those of you who don't know, there was a horrible uh, wave of slaughter carried out by the Indonesian military. I would go into the whole history, but many of you have heard it from me a million times already, so just look it up online. you got to learn about East Timor. Someday maybe I'll do a podcast where I just tell the story of East Timor. Oh boy, wouldn't that be exciting? Anyway, in 1999, there was another wave of violence. It was the last wave of violence from the Indonesian military before they finally left, and at one point, there was a UN compound which had 1,500 Timorese women and children that was being attacked by militias most of the UN personnel had been pulled out. Uh, a number of reporters, most reporters had left East Timor, but Marie Colvin, along with two other women, uh, stayed in the UN compound and demanded that, uh, the, 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 that a presence from the West be somehow represented because they probably, as the government of East Timor, the Prime Minister said recently, she, those people probably help avert a massacre. If they hadn't been there, those people in the UN compound probably would have been killed. And that's an amazing thing to see someone putting their life on the line like that, like Marie Colvin did and uh, so I salute her and I think she's an awesome person and I think it's a shame that um, our standard of beauty isn't more geared toward people like this uh, as instead of you know the, the sort of standard Kardashian of the month or whatever you want to call it Okay, a um, couple of things real quick to talk about in terms of economics uh, we're, we're seeing an absolutely absurd uh, mixture of uh, absurdity and uh, cynicism dished out on us by the Republican Party because, of course, at the one time they have to sort of uh, jab at each other so Santorum is pretending like he's the real blue-collar individual, but Mitt Romney's trying to pretend like he's the real blue-collar individual, and it's all so absurd because both of them have access to wealth far beyond what any of the rest of us do, right now at least. And uh, there's no question that if they ever become president, they are going to mostly do the bidding of the top 1%. And so, uh, as, as more or less Obama has. Now, he's been slightly more receptive to the pushing and shoving of Occupy Wall Street, but not much. And, of course, we know Dodd-Frank didn't really do much of anything to try to close the, uh, the danger zone left open by the 2008 uh, financial disaster. And so, anyway, uh, to the point of all that is to say that you should read Ha Jun Chang. There 
there is a uh, he is originally from South Korea and he's been the uh, chief economist for the IMF and the uh, he's he's worked with the World Bank he's lectured uh, at every university across the world he's an amazing guy if you do a YouTube search for why the world isn't flat you will find the best 90 minute response to Thomas Friedman's free market horse crap you will ever find and I he just put out a new book recently called the 23 things they don't tell you about capitalism which again is just a, an excellent read uh, his last book Bad Samaritans uh, the truth about uh, free trade and the secret history of free trade something like that uh, anyway that's an amazing book he goes through all these ways in which the US and Britain and other countries uh, pretend as though the free market you know answer to everything is always the answer and he shows that that wasn't even true for the development of the United States and Britain in large part so uh, he just does a really good job of putting these complex issues into ordinary uh, plain language that we can all understand and the 23 things about capitalism they don't the 23 the 23 things they don't tell you about capitalism is specifically designed to be as he puts it sort of an an, an economic citizenry primer so that we can sort of get an, a sense of how the world economy really works uh, so that we can be active citizens in an economic sense and unfortunately I think too few people pay attention to economic things especially the larger scale economic things and we only really pay attention to maybe the jobless rate or whatever it is but uh, you know as Adam Smith said those who think that uh, we, we hear often about, and I'm paraphrasing here, but Adam Smith said something like, uh, we hear often about the uh, combinations and the groupings of the working people, but those who think that the, uh, the, 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 the well-to-do, the wealthy of the world, don't also combine in serious ways, uh, they're fooling themselves. And so it's important for us to be aware of those groupings, I think, and not just the G20, but also the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and all the rest of it. So uh, he does a good job, and I'd say Hajun Chang's uh, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism is really a must-read for anybody who's at all interested in how money works in this uh, world and uh, why. He's a capitalist. It's not an anti-capitalist book. I want to make that clear. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of neither a capitalist nor a socialist, really. He, uh, Martin Luther King put it really well. He said that uh, the, the true kingdom of heaven is neither the thesis of cap uh, capitalism nor the antithesis of communism. And so we have to find a synthesis combining both of them and that makes eminent sense to me you know uh, there are certain things about capitalism that are great and there are certain things about capitalism that are horrible and the same is true for socialism so we need to find ways to sort of blend those concepts and uh, demand uh, the right to dignity as individuals and also demand for the needs of the community to be met they are not mutually exclusive and I refuse to accept the notion that it's one or the other and you have to be a uh, fundamentalist warrior in either direction uh, and that's not healthy I think so I will not do that Speaking of people who speak out against the established order and, as some people say, fight the powers that be, uh, Public Enemy uh, continues, of course, to put out music. Chuck D's always putting out tracks here, there, and everywhere. He did a good remix of uh, The Time I Get to Arizona, which was about the wall. Uh, he talking about Tear Down That Wall. Uh, and it's just a really good track. Also, uh, he's launching a, an organization called Enemy Books. And some people are going to obviously hear that and think, wait a minute, why would someone start a, uh, a book publisher now? But, of course, you know, Chuck D's very much interested in new media and electronic publishing and stuff. So uh, it'd be very interesting to see uh, what comes of that uh, because, you know, Chuck D's got a lot to say and he's one of the most important voices uh, ever in the history of hip hop. And so to see which books he helps to choose, I mean, obviously it's not just him, but, uh, you know, this this new organization that he's sort of, they call it the brainchild of Chuck D. Um, we'll, I'm very interested to see what they come out with because I can tell that it's not going to be uh, schlock, it's not going to be simplistic. Um, 
Chuck D is the one who coined the term dumbassification to talk about how American culture and things in the world generally just seem to get dumber all the time. And if we thought that Nixon was horrible, you know, then here comes Ronald Reagan, and then we think, oh, God, I can't get worse than that. And then here comes George W. Bush, and we're like, oh, my God, it's worse. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's important for us to have dissenting voices and uh, to, to be aware. And I think Ch Pu Public Enemy and Chuck D are, are people who can really do a good job bringing insightful, important uh, points of view out that aren't getting published any other way. All right, I think that's enough about world politics. Uh, nothing else in the world of hip-hop. Um, yeah, there's this new report that came out about how sleeping pills may be linked with early death. Uh, this at time.com they have a blog called Health Land and uh, yeah they reported and a lot of other places reported too about a new study uh, which compared 10,529 people who received prescriptions for sleep aids with nearly twice as many people with similar health histories who did not take sleeping pills and the researchers found that those who had prescriptions were more than four times as likely to have died during the year's 2.5 year follow up as those who didn't take the drugs now, this concerns me because I sometimes struggle with insomnia. In fact, it's my contention that most people involved in education have some form of insomnia. And I attribute this to the fact that we're basically uh, enmeshing ourselves into the lives of you know hundreds and hundreds of young people at all times, and they are constantly moving through our world and our little sphere of awareness, uh, and we have to make sure we do certain things when they do. Uh, so our to-do lists are often mutating constantly and, and hard to keep track of, and even after you've put everything on the to-do list that you have to do, there's still a dozen things connected to all of them that you have to make sure you check your mailbox and get in touch with that person and then go back here and don't forget to pick up this when you're over there and I think that teaching has a very special kind of uh, brain drain that is responsible for a lot of people in education suffering from some kind of insomnia. I certainly do. I frequently wake up at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. Uh, despite the fact that I've set the alarm for 5.45 a.m. And I have to just sort of sit there and hope I can get back to sleep. And if I can't, I become horribly sluggish. I, I take naps in the afternoon. I'm asleep at like 10 p.m. on the weekends. I've, I've, you know, become a very old person in terms of my sleep schedule. Up at 5 a.m. even in, you know, the weekends and in the summertime. Uh, so it's all been shifted back. And, and it's hard to let the brain slow down. Uh, so as a consequence, you know, insomnia results. And unfortunately, it's either take some sleep aids once in a while or have horrible debilitating headaches uh, that you know make me have to call in sick every frequent every so often uh, so that's no good um, however this new study that links sleeping pills with uh, possible increased risk of you know cancer and things uh, th which is another part of the finding um, is that it's uh, yeah I'm not happy to hear that because I hate to think that these sleeping pills which are keeping me from having you know horrible headaches uh, during the school week uh, might have horrible health effects later on. Ideally, I would like to not use sleeping pills, so I try to meditate and things, but unfortunately, one of the problems is that at the end of the school day, I'm so, uh, you know, sort of running full speed, um, you know, I want to do things that are uh, enjoyable and um, totally uh, fun, and as much as I enjoy meditating and I feel good after I do it, uh, it's not always my number one thing to do when I get home from school. 
So uh, anyway, and, and I, I can't really say that that's a total replacement for the occasional sleep aid anyway. I wish it were. I wish I could meditate constantly and then have no trouble falling asleep, but unfortunately it doesn't really work that same way. And I, at this point I've kind of reached a point where I feel like I am, um, you know, I, I have a sort of symbiotic relationship with this new chemical element, and uh, it's not an addiction, I don't think, but it is something that is helping me at the point right now. So um, I don't take any prescription sleeping aids. Uh, it's all sort of over-the-counter stuff. And I, I'm re- working really hard not to um, develop any kind of dependency because dependency on anything really sucks. And so I'm trying to stay clear of it, uh, but it uh, it's also it's a little worrying, you know. And obviously when this stuff comes out, uh, it's one specific study and we get very nervous. And if we are part of the group that's responsible or involved with that particular finding, we tend to freak out, especially and think, oh, great, you know, you're never supposed to eat eggs. Oh, you're always supposed to eat eggs or whatever it is. Um, but suffice it to say that caused me to say, huh? Okay. Uh, let's see. What else do I need to tell you about? The Simpsons is awesome. You don't need me to tell you that. Uh, (laughs) you all know that I read a really interesting article in business week about, uh, how do people get chosen for the Ted conventions? You you probably know what Ted is. If you don't, uh, there's a really cool website. uh, I think it's Ted.com. Uh, it stands for technology, entertainment, and design. And it's a gathering annually of, of people who get together and give these talks. And a lot of the talks are just fascinating. You could easily spend two hours at the Ted website without even realizing it. They've got all sorts of people, authors and inventors and famous people and completely non-famous people. And, uh, you know, professionals of various types and people who have been involved in, uh, foreign conflicts and just all sorts of just really interesting people giving talks. Uh, Jay Smooth from uh, Ill Doctrine gave a talk at one, and there's just been a lot of great people. Amy Tan's talk is especially good when she talks about creativity and things. Anyway, uh, how do people get chosen to go there? Well, apparently it's really hard uh, to get the notice of people who are running TED, and the TED organizers obviously want to make it clear that, oh, we're not being elitist in any way, uh, but... it's sort of a, you know, who do you know? That can help you get a spot at a TED conference. And I just think it would be awesome to give a talk at a TED conference. Um, but suffice it to say that, you know, I can't stand the process of trying to get people to read my writing, let alone trying to audition for, you know, oh, I'm clever and smart enough to give an engaging short, you know, talk to a bunch of people who really think I'm hip and cool. Uh, but suffice it to say that that would be really cool. Uh, I, I don't think I would have the dedication to spend so much time working on getting one group of people to notice me when I can clearly just talk into a microphone and some people notice me anyway. Uh, anyway, Business Week had that and uh, it's really interesting. I don't know. I've become addicted to Business Week. Sometimes I'll go down to the library in the school and just read it and then get really depressed and go back up to my classes and say, I just spent the hour reading Business Week. And they're like, so? And I'm like, what do you mean so? Dude, the the, the, the coolest man in the world or whatever he's called, the Dos Equis dude, like he doubled sales for Dos Equis. Can't you see how much they're brainwashing us and using the internet and social media as a way to sell their crap? I mean, even Stephen Colbert makes fun of Wheat Thins, but then we're all talking about Wheat Thins. And even I had Wheat Thins on my classroom today. Like, wow! It kind of feels like a, a viral. It is viral. It's exactly what it is. It's totally viral. And so, you know, but, but on the other hand, you know, as Chomsky always says, the business press does a good job of telling the truth. So they're quite open and honest about the fact, like, we're going to use these you know, cool hunters or the avant-garde people to spread our message. And it works because, hey, I'm cool and I'm doing it, so it must be working. Anyway, um, yeah, what else? Oh, geez. Okay, so Foxconn... <laughs> 
If you don't know about Foxconn, I'm just sort of scrolling through Business Week now. What else can I talk about? Well, oh, Foxconn, yeah, we want to hear about that some more. For those of you who don't know, uh, a lot of electronics, especially consumer electronics, uh, including Apple iPods and iPads and all the rest of it, it gets made. Most a lot of that stuff gets made at a factory. And when I say factory, you're probably thinking about the 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 plant that uh, uh, Michael Moore visits in Roger and Me. But I'm talking more about like a city, and and it's called Foxconn, and there's like dozens of thousands of people who they live at this place they eat this place they never leave it they work like 18 hour days uh the conditions tend to be really crummy because there's no independent union in china right you're in china you're a worker you join the official union and if there's a problem you report it to the official union but anybody who's ever witnessed a struggle for democracy in a union knows that the official union is often not very responsive to uh you know people's complaints and so uh the conditions tend to you know there there were a lot of suicides at foxconn last year Year and uh, the response of the Foxconn executives was, let's put up some nets because so, the people were jumping off the buildings. So the executives said, let's put up some nets so that they can't jump off the buildings. Uh, and I don't, I don't really think that's good enough, in my opinion. Anyway, Apple has gotten a lot of heat for this, and there was a, an episode of This American Life where this guy went over to Shenzhen, which is the place where the Foxconn um, f- factory is in China, and he interviewed people, and he met with, you know, like 13-year-olds who had been working on the factory lines, and people were like, ah, that shouldn't happen. That's right. That's why the World Trade Organization needs to outlaw that stuff. No, 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 we can't have restrictions on free trade. <laughs> Child labor. It really is now becoming like child labor is a restriction on free trade. How dare you outlaw child labor? That's something that people should be, hey, if the child wants to do it, because, you know, children in Shenzhen, China are thinking, man, I really want to go work at the Foxconn factory. No, it's economic necessity, okay? And it's ridiculous. So whatever. So now Apple is uh, engaged in this. I said, I thought you said the global politics and economic stuff was over with. Yeah, sorry, I lied. Uh, I should always make sure I visit Business Week before I move off of the uh, crazy politics, economic stuff. Okay, so Apple, <laughs> Apple has. Uh, submitted to this sort of internal auditing process. And there's this report that came out that said it's going to be totally honest and independent because they're putting the workers who want to respond to the questions into a room with an iPad. And for many of them, it's their first time ever actually using one. Oh, my God. (laughs) Z-O-M-G. Um, So the thing is that, yeah, that's supposed to make it totally independent because it's all anonymous and but but I have to wonder if they're not sending the workers into this room with the iPad in a certain order, and if there's any way for them to, I don't know how they would do this, but if the auditing company were to keep track of who's in when with the iPad, it seems like a fairly simple technology to employ. Uh, but maybe I'm being cynical. Maybe I should give it a chance to work. Uh, in any case, there was a really interesting article that came out recently where uh, somebody got, for the first time, access to the Foxconn place. Yeah, here we go. It's ABC Nightline, actually. They were the ones who got access to this uh, the, the factory in Foxconn. Now, you know... It's not like he just showed up unannounced, right? <laughs> the company knew he was coming, and they knew that he was representing a pretty big deal in network television in the United States media. So I can't imagine that he, they got, he got the same kind of uh, perspective that you know uh, a, a regular worker would get. But in any case, uh, they talked to this group called SACOM, which is pretty cool. It stands for Scholars Against Corporate Misbehavior, and it's headquartered in Hong Kong, so it's sort of independent, and they're able to communicate in certain ways and ring certain alarm bells that people in China can't can't do unless they want to go to prison for 20 years. 
So the fact that they spoke to SACOM is pretty cool. And uh, this one woman, Debbie Chan, said, uh, Apple's long history of internal audits proves the company already knows where the problems are. And this whole audit thing is, in her opinion, sort of a smokescreen for them to say, well, we don't know where the problems are. And it's clear that they do. Quote, there must be a genuine trade union at Apple's suppliers so the workers can have a voice for themselves, she says. I thought I just said that recently. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, so it's... Um, it's a it's it's a crazy situation. What's going on? Again, you know, I don't know that I have a, a quick and easy answer. I just certainly don't want to start any sort of horrible trade war with China. But I think part of the problem is that and maybe other people aren't thinking this way. Maybe it's just you, Mr. P. I know. Uh, but the point is that it's possible that. Um, the, the, what we, we think of as Americans is we got to find an answer to this problem right now. Does it involve bombs? Maybe. We, we, we want to think that there's going to be some quick, like, get it done. I mean, we, I think to our credit, that's one of the things that really uh, stands out about us as a, as a nation is that people in the United States really want to get stuff done. And we're, you know, Harriet Tubman didn't sit around and theorize about stuff. She went and got stuff done, right? And William Lloyd Garrison was uh, not about, you know, philosophizing. He was about, you know what, we need to end this slavery thing now. And I will not relent and I will not back down and all the rest of it. Eugene Debs and, and Harvey Milk. And these people are like, let's get stuff done. And, and we've done a lot of good stuff. We've done a lot of horrible stuff too, blah, blah, blah. The point I want to make is that sometimes we can't just get stuff done. And sometimes we need to find more subtle ways to deal with some of the problems in the world. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, when I was younger, I, I was very impatient. And, and at one point I listened to a speech by an older Abby Hoffman who said, we need young people in the front because young people are impatient. Young people want things solved now and I think that's a healthy thing but we also have to have the wisdom of course to be able to step back sometimes and say hey this can't be solved right now we need a long-term pressurized approach so we can continue to push and shove for a solution to this problem even though we realize it may not be solved tomorrow all right, one more thing I want to tell you about. Uh, I wrote a story called Agoraphobia, and if you haven't read it yet, please read it. I think it's awesome. In fact, I think it's the best thing I've ever read, written. I think it's the best thing I've ever written. It's also the best thing I've ever read, but that's because everything I read by myself is among the best things ever written. No, they're not. Uh, but, no, I, th I really think this story is excellent, and uh, I've gotten some good positive feedback on it, and uh, Phil also was nice enough to even blog about it. How nice is that? That's really cool. Um, these video game communities have been really awesome for my soul in many different ways. So uh, cheers to him, and cheers to everybody who's listening to this, and I apologize for... Um, occupying your ears for a half an hour but I'm glad that you let me in because uh, I do have a lot of stuff to say and it's kind of weird when people are willing to listen to you because for a lot of my life believe it or not I've had people sort of ignoring what I've said and it started when I was very young and I guess when they didn't ridicule me I was okay with them ignoring me so I sort of get used to being ignored uh, and then as a teacher of course you deal with being ignored on a regular basis you have to sort of deal with it and you try your best not to be ignored and you talk real loud and bleh uh, but when there comes a point when you have to just accept that, okay, not everybody wants to hear what I have to say right now. Uh, the weird thing, of course, is when people are willing to listen to what you have to say. And a lot of times, we're stuck at that point, because we don't know how to interact with people who actually want to hear us. Uh, and I remember that at, at one point, the, the first time it happened to me politically, I think, uh, I mean, I went to meetings and people were willing to listen to me, but the first time I'd ever had sort of strangers listening in, it was such a rewarding experience. I was at the campus of the University of Florida, and there was this group there who had come with these enormous uh, pictures of fetuses, aborted fetuses, and it was all this shock campaign to make people angry and hopefully spur some thinking and get people to stop aborting their fetuses. 
fetuses. Uh, and it's just really grotesque scare tactics. And there was a table of people uh, from Planned Parenthood and other choice groups uh, that were there to sort of say, you know what, people, look, let's, that's not cool. Like, we should have the right to, you know, safe and um, uh, whatever, legal abortion. Uh, anyway, so, but the point is that uh, we ended up having all sorts of discussions around that table and with people coming by. And it was a very lively marketplace of ideas. Now, obviously, it had been spurred by and the vast majority of the people who came through were disgusted by this hideous uh, in-your-face display and that group is famous for using uh, pictures of the Holocaust and, and Jewish people get very upset about that because they believe that the images of the their ancestors who were killed in the Holocaust are sort of sacred and you shouldn't use them without their permission and a lot of them don't agree with the methods of this group and so on and so forth but the group thrives on that sort of controversy in the same way that PETA does blah blah blah. The point is, there were a bunch of people talking about a lot of different things, and at one point, I remember that I was uh, into it with some guy who had this very cynical attitude, and he was having this whole thing about, well, it doesn't matter what we do, man, the man has got everything sewed up, and the rich control everything, and there's nothing we can do, and it's just, you know, the whole thing is just pointless, and, and there's no reason for us to be involved in anything, and I just lit into him, and I was just telling him straight off, you are wrong, Alan Nairn, you should write letters, you can make a change, we made the Congress stand up for self-determination, and he's Timor, and this was before he's team where it had the actual vote, but it was just an amazing moment where it was just like, boom, 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 you're wrong, and here's why you're wrong, and eventually he was just sort of like, whatever, man, he left, and I realized that there were like 20 people standing around listening to me, and they had expressions on their faces I had never seen before, expressions, not on strangers, expressions which said, go on, so it was a weird moment, I didn't know what to say, yeah, and another thing that you should all know is that the United States doesn't always stand up for democracy, and what's up with that, and, and it became a very different conversation, I think, but it was a great moment, because I felt like, hey, I'm not insane, and like, not everybody who hears me talk about this stuff is going to go, yeah, whatever, who cares. And if we were doing the Veteran Gamers podcast right now, I would play that sound clip. Now, there may be people from the Veteran Gamers listening to this, and I hope you weren't expecting video games, because I do all my video game talking on that other podcast. This is for other kinds of talking. Um, Anyway, you might also have wondered, why aren't there any sound effects? Because, of course, on the Veteran Gamers podcast, I am Mr. Soundclip Man, ballin'. Um, But... It felt like this was the wrong forum for that. And it also seems a little desperate to do sound effects when you're by yourself. Uh, It's weird and probably a little desperate for me to even be talking to myself by myself. But uh, whatever. I'm going to stop sort of the weird meta pity party, whatever I'm doing, uh, talking about myself like that. Anyway, no sound effects. This is a serious forum for discussion of ideas about politics and economy and stuff. Uh, Okay, so that's it, and thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll be back with another one of these next week. Oh, boy. Deviant Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.